Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Thank you for joining us to worship and learn more about God as we all pursue Him together as a community. For more podcasts and services about past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendecatur.org. Or come connect with us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning, good morning, good morning. How are you all? I, uh, I just want to pick up on that thought that Jess left right when she walked out. I've never considered um, heaven, you know, being eternal, that we get to spend all our time with eternity. I've, I've always pictured it like, well, yeah, he's worth it. Like, he's worthy to be worshipped for all eternity. But I never once considered what she just alluded to, that we'll need an eternity, eternity to give him thanks for all that he's done in our lives. Is that a pretty profound statement? Isn't that great? Think about that for a moment. Like God in his great graciousness to us, his goodness, knows how much thanks that we're going to want to give him, and he gives us all eternity to give it to him. Isn't that great? So anyways, all right, well, I'm so glad you're here. We're going to continue our Bible study in the book of Luke. If you have a Bible with you, Luke chapter 8 is where we are going to be reading. I hope you bring a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's probably a hardback black Bible underneath the seat around you. You can use one of those, and if you don't own a copy of the scriptures, you're welcome to take one of those home with you. And I say this most weeks, uh, take it with you if you don't own one. We do not want to add to your collection of Bibles that you have at home that you probably don't already read. So just leave it here for the next time and we could continue to use it for the next people that show up. Um, I'm going to read verses 19 through 21 in Luke chapter 8. And this is where we're going to be. We'll put the words on the screen behind me or on the over here and you can follow along there. You ready? Here we go. Verse 19. It says, then his mother, this is Jesus' mother. Mary is her name, remember? Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. Verse 20, and so he was told that your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they desire to see you. But Jesus answered them, my mother and my brothers, they are those who hear the word of God and do it. Whew, that's my work for today. Um, Lord, help us get through it. Uh, I'll begin with an interesting uh, factoid to begin our time today. Many of the books of the Bible, and there are 66 different books in the Bible. It's all kind of put together in one library. We call it a Bible, one book, but it's actually 66 separate books and or letters in one Bible. But many of the books in the Bible are written by mysterious authors. And I don't mean that the authors themselves are mysterious. It's just that we don't actually know for sure who wrote them. For example, the first five books of our Bible, we'd call it in the Old Testament or the Hebrew part of the Bible, the first five books are called the Pentateuch. And penta meaning five, like pentagram, right? That sounds weird in church. But anyways, it's a Pentateuch, right? And so the first five books of the Bible, we call, um, the first five books are called the Pentateuch. And we don't know for sure who wrote those first five books. Now, some biblical scholars point to a myriad of different verses that sort of imply, but don't 100% say for certainty, that Moses is the one who wrote them. 
And that makes sense to some degree. We believe Moses wrote that the first, the first five books of the Bible. See, Moses was there when God rescued God's people out of Egypt. If you know the story in the book of Exodus, which is in the Pentateuch, Moses was there when the, the people of God being rescued out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, and they are pinned in behind an Egyptian army that's chasing after them and an impassable Red Sea in front of them. And they, they thought surely they were doomed. And, and nobody but Moses could tell us with the, the anxiousness and the dread that they felt when God finally came in, parted the Red Sea, and allowed the, God's people to move through and to be rescued. God, God um, did that, and Moses, in harrowing detail, told us that story. But there are so many other stories in the Pentateuch where Moses wasn't even there. And my question is, then how does Moses know to tell us these stories? Let me give you some ideas or examples, rather, of um, the things that Moses wasn't there for. Moses, Moses wasn't even born 430 years prior when famine had swept through the land that caused the Israelites to go down into Egypt to escape starvation. Moses was not there when a young boy named Joseph was thrown into a pit by his jealous older brothers. And then they told their dad that Moses, his, or sorry, Joseph, their favorite son, had, uh, his favorite son had died. Moses wasn't there when Jacob wrestled with God all night because he was certain the next day he was going to be killed when he was reunited with the brother that he had swindled some years prior. Moses wasn't there when God promised a family as a legacy to Abraham and his beautiful wife, Sarah, even though they were advanced in age and childless. Moses never saw Noah hammering a board into the ark. He wasn't there when it first started to rain, and he wasn't there when the waters came up. And Moses for sure wasn't there when the darkness was covering the deep, and a voice cried out and said, let there be light, and creation began. And yet, the story Moses writes if Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, which for the record, don't send me the emails, I do believe. I just do believe that. But his first verse in all of scripture says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No one was there but God. And all of this begs the question, then how does Moses, if we believe he's the one who wrote these stories, how does Moses get this information to record for us that future generations, people like yourself, people like me, might one day read about it, learn about God and his great rescue plan to save us? How did he get those stories? Well, we believe that God gave them to him. And the Bible doesn't say specifically how Moses got the stories, but the tradition does say that, that Moses would meet with God in this thing called the tabernacle, or it's a tent basically that went with the Israelites in the desert and they would set up this tent and every once in a while the, the cloud of glory of God would come down and rest upon this tent, this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, we also call it in scripture. And when Moses would see this cloud come down and descend, he would say, God is there and he would make his way to the tent where he would go inside, only him, and he would commune with God for hours and hours and hours. In these moments, we know that God told him the statutes for the people of God and how they're supposed to live. And we also believe that it's in these moments that God was also telling him the story about darkness covering the deep. And God spoke, let there be light, and light came. He's the one who's telling Moses these stories. So ultimately, we might say, even though Moses was the one who wrote the stories down, the ultimate author is God himself. And like most great authors, 
He leads his readers through a series of ups and downs. The tension reveals a hero. The hero is, everybody say it with me now, Jesus. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. And he overcomes the seemingly impossible obstacles placed in front of him. And in this grand narrative, this meta-narrative, this grand story of the Bible, we see how God was going to use his son to save and or rescue his people out of the clutches of sin and death and ultimately restore everything to its perfect beginning once again, just like it was in the beginning when God spoke, let there be light. God saw the people that he had created, considered us worth be, uh, saving and sent the, uh, his son Jesus the highest paid price imaginable to send your only son to save us. So all that to say, when Moses recounts the story of when God made humanity, he writes this, and this is all driving to a point. Hang with me here. God says these words. Then God said, let us make man in our Im image, in our likeness. This is in Genesis chapter one, verse 26, where, where God is telling Moses the creation story of how he created everything and how he created man. And there's this interesting moment where God said to himself, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, which seems almost grammatically incorrect. Like we should take out our red teacher's pen and just start giving him some red marks for his grammar because God oftentimes is read in the singular. And yet he uses us and our in the plural and it just seems kind of wonky. But this is, this is the tell for us to understand that God, we serve and believe in a triune God. Are you with me? That he is father, son, and spirit. And, and together in his community and in his connection with himself, he takes that likeness and builds us, wrong word, but creates us as humans in his image, almost to say this, that we are pre-made with a, a spiritual DNA, a, a physical DNA, if you will, that desires connection, that we desire to be connected to other people. And all of this points to that makeup within us. And the greatest way that we can see this desire for connection, this relational component, is in the 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 family, the metaphor of the family. And all through the pages of scripture, we see God use the family as a metaphor to describe his relationship with his people. Christian psychiatrist, Kurt Thompson writes this. He says, quote, we are all born into the world looking for someone looking for us, end quote. That inside of us is a desire. Babies long for the gaze of their parents. You can see it in all the, those funny little videos that kids take when they're having some school assembly and they didn't know if dad could get off work and be there. And so he's kind of frustrated. And all of a sudden he catches dads sitting in the back and he just beams on, this, on the stage, right? You, we, we desire to be seen. We might say this, we want to behold and to be held by others. And again, the primary way that we connect through others to, to others is, is through our families. And I say primary, meaning this, that it's first, and I would even argue most important for us that we learn how to connect with others in our families. And family is just a theme that the scripture uses from the Old Testament to the New. In fact, there's an interesting passage in Ephesians chapter two where Paul is describing to Gentiles or non-Jewish people what it's like to become a Christian. He's explaining, reminding them how they used to be strangers far removed from God, but through the work of Jesus Christ, by his reconciliatory work on the cross and by his resurrection, they have been grafted in to be true followers of God. Paul writes this, Ephesians 2, and says this, so now you are no longer strangers nor aliens, but you are fellow members and are fellow citizens with the saints and what? Members of the household of God. This is family language. 
These new Christians are called members of God's household. They are his families. And I can't help but think of all of the metaphors that God could have used to describe the relationship between himself and his people. He chose the family. It means something to us. It should. And it makes sense, honestly, because we all have some sense of what it means to be a member of a family. Whether you're born into your family or maybe you're adopted, the family is the framework we use to understand this relationship with God. But for some of us, and the families are in fact a safe place where we grow up and thrive as individuals, and for others, our families weren't a safe place. They're rather a conflicted and complicated dynamic that, that only Dr. Phil could appreciate, right? He's still a thing, I have no idea. Pastor Mark Plumer writes this, that our family systems are broken by sin. But God is faithful to accomplish his purpose and to build his kingdom through them. The damage of families is well known. Children are scarred by parental neglect and abuse. Parents struggle to raise unruly kids. Spouses carry the wounds of hurtful words spoken, lies told, intimacy withheld, and anger unleashed. Many marriages end in divorce, wounding all members of the family system. And we bumble through life and try to pick up the broken pieces, yet God can use even our brokenness and make something beautiful of our mess. That is the beauty of God's choice of metaphor. This brokenness of the family is on full display. He calls us a family, and then he gives us pictures of what family looks like, and he doesn't scrub them clean. If you read the Old Testament, you will be shocked at some of the families that you run into. We are a broken people, and the people in Scripture were a broken people too. Let's take a look at just a couple of these families in the Old Testament. There's a man named Abraham. You might know Abraham. One time, the Bible tells us that he was sojourning, making his way through Egypt, and out of fear, as he's making his way through Egypt, he tells his beautiful wife, Sarah, to pretend to be his sister because he's convinced that if Pharaoh, the king, finds out that this is actually his wife, he will have Abraham killed and just take Sarah as one of his concubines. So this is a move of self-preservation. It's like he doesn't even care about the well-being of his wife. Jerk. I'll say it for you. He cares more about his self-preservation. I don't want to die, so tell everybody we're related by family, by sisters. We're not married or whatever. And so she does. But the king, Pharaoh, decides to take her as his concubine anyways. He lets Abraham live, but he's like, so what? I'm still taking your wife. He doesn't know it's his wife. And, and, and things were about to go really, really dark, like Quentin Tarantino style. But God, anyone? All right. But God intervened in a vision, in a dream to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh learns that this is not Abraham's sister, but in fact, his wife. There's a story of Isaac and Rebekah. Here we read the story of a husband and a wife whose marriage was ultimately ripped apart by divided parental affection. Isaac loved one of their sons named Esau, and Rebekah loved the other son, Jacob. And psychiatrists talk about this all the time, the triangulation of the family, where parents will draw closer to one because they're missing something, some relational component from their spouse, not in some perverse sexual way, but in some perverse emotional way. And the child begins to fulfill a need that the spouse isn't given the other one, so they draw closer to them. And then this person, even though children, we desire the affection of our parents, we're drawn towards it, and we feel somewhat repulsed by it because mom loves me more than she loves my brother, or vice versa. What, and it's all of these things. It's just it's a brokenness inside. And, and we see in the pages of Scripture that this is what's happening in Isaac and Rebekah. 
And that family, if you read that story, just broke apart. The family was destroyed. But we can thank God again when we see his hand at work bringing both those brothers back together in reconciliation, harboring no hatred towards them. And there's so many other stories of family of brokenness in the Old Testament. And we even see some of these stories in the New Testament, especially in the life of Jesus, which brings us to the passage today. <sighs> that was my intro. I'm ready to get started now. Let's go. Let's go. Jesus in this Luke chapter eight story is beginning to redefine what a family is. So far in the book of Luke, we've read how Jesus has begun his ministry. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He's performing miracles and he's picked 12 disciples to train as his apprentices and he's going to be their rabbi and teacher. He's beginning to gather crowds around him and now we're seeing, starting to see him quietly slip, slip away for like moments alone with the Lord, for prayer, for alone time, for solitude and silence. And in Mark's biography of Jesus, so we're reading in Luke's, but there's other biographies of Jesus' life. We call them the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In Mark's biography of Jesus, he tells us that during this time, many religious leaders are beginning to, to say that Jesus is in fact not sent by God, but is rather being used by the devil. That there's... There's some argument that the miracles that Jesus is performing is not because power from heaven, but power from demonic forces. Some even go so far to say that Jesus is possessed by a demon in this period of his life. And some even stretch the tale to say that Jesus might actually have a mental illness like schizophrenia. And all of these words are being spoken about Jesus exactly at this time when, when um, Jesus' mother's Jesus' mother and his brothers come to him. In fact, in Mark's gospel, we read this. Jesus' family, his mother and his brothers, they come out to where the crowds are and to where Jesus is gathered, and they try to grab him and to take him back home. Read this, Mark chapter 3, verse 21. It says that when his family heard of it, of all of this thing that's happening around Jesus, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, the details are a little fuzzy here. We don't know if the family actually think Jesus is out of his mind. Maybe they think that. For sure, some of the people think he's out of his mind or de demonically possessed or whatever. It's possible that maybe his brothers are jealous of Jesus' ministry. I have no idea. Does anybody know the comedian Michael Jr.? Michael Jr., he has this wonderful bit about Jesus, like Jesus' dad, Joseph, like at dinner. And one time, like they're sitting together for a meal and Jesus is getting all the attention from everybody. But Joseph feels bad for the other brothers, like James and this and that. And so at the meal, they pray for the meal and he closes the prayer in James' name. And he gives a wink to James because everybody prays in Jesus' name and James feel, anyone? Okay, so anyway, so... Anyways, there's this idea that maybe the brothers are jealous of Jesus. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But at some point, they go out to grab Jesus and stop him from what he's doing. They don't want him to do this. Maybe they're embarrassed by the things that Jesus is doing. Maybe they feel like he's bringing shame to their family name. Maybe they think he's just a little too zealous. Calm down, bro. Maybe that's what they're thinking. May, may I argue that the same is possibly true for you and I? That sometimes, too, when God calls us to do particular things, like, I don't know, go to church, read our Bibles, stop getting drunk, stop sleeping with your boyfriend, stop stealing from work. Are you writing these down? Write these down. You want me to go over them again? Sometimes when God calls us to do these things, 
the people closest to us say things like, dude, what's come over you? What are you doing? What are you thinking? I think you're making a, a big mistake with all of this. <laughs> I was trying to wait it out, but that was long. <laughs> Amen. Let's go. So, so many think we're making a mistake with all of this God stuff in our lives. And so maybe they too try to come through the crowds and pull us away. I, I don't know. I'm not trying to overstretch there. By no means am I suggesting that you are Jesus. You are not. But I do know that God has a plan for you and God is calling you to it. And there will be people who love you, right? And, but don't know how to love you in this season of your life. And they will try to pull you away from the very thing that God is trying to lead you into. And um, <laughs> the sucky thing is, is they're oftentimes family. So we feel it for the first time. When God is calling us into something brand new, it's like we're swimming in water, like the depths of God's goodness. Is anyone like, and you just feel like for the first time, this is what you were made for and you're swimming and you're doing it. And then out of nowhere, somebody comes up to you and says, you think you can do these things, but you can't, Nemo. <laughs> Everyone felt that. Was that the most spiritual movie ever? Like that is, the, that is the Christian experience. Like Nemo knows he can do things. God is calling him to something greater. It's out in the ocean, anyone. And he's going out there and, and, and Marlon, the dad is like, you can't do this. And Marlon would say he's argued by, or motivated by love. Anyways. So we pick up the story here in Luke chapter eight, verse 19. Eight, verse 19. Then it says, the mother of Jesus, Mary, and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And, and so they were told, your, so Jesus was told rather, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. Basically, Jesus' mother and Mary, Mary and her sons break through the crowd to get to Jesus. They can't get there, so they send someone and say, go, go tell Jesus that, that we want to talk to him out here. And look, Jesus doesn't go. Start with that. <laughs> he doesn't go. I'm, I don't want to bore you with the details of my crazy pre-Christian life, but when I became a Christian, there were many things that my friends used to go do that I used to join them with, and I stopped doing with them. And they were like, why aren't you going out with us anymore? Why aren't you joining us Friday night for this? Why aren't you going here? And I just had a different desire for life. I had to say no. And when Jesus' mother and his brothers come to him, and I don't know if he just supernaturally knows what they want. They're trying to stop him. Who knows? Details are fuzzy, but we do know that he said no to them. He did not go. He doesn't respond. He doesn't respond to the request for, to stop doing what he's doing. And in fact, it's here we see Jesus stretch the metaphor of the family to say that family is more than just flesh and blood. And this is gonna hurt and maybe help a lot of people here. But he says, a truer family exists where membership is founded by faith and trusted by trust. And Jesus responds in Luke 8, 21 and says this, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and obey or do it. These are the ones who are my family now. We could do a whole series on that. But just know this, Jesus is saying those who belong to God are called brothers and sisters. They are now his family and they should be, they should, um, how should we define that word family in our understanding of this life with God? 
We know that definitions can change over time and in different cultures. Some families stay close, like mine. They all live here in town. I love Thanksgiving and Christmas because I don't travel three miles. Anyone? And some of y'all got to go all the way to Kansas City, suckers, and you got to go all the way over here because you moved away and all that stuff. You did it, not me. I'm just saying. (laughs) But definitions of family change over time. But here we see Jesus redefine what the the family is. And he helps us to see that the spiritual family... um, and how it operates, we see what the spiritual family is by looking through the lens of our natural families. And family, again, is one of the most relational words used when describing the church. And now we'll flip to that word too. So when we talk about the church, you'll often hear times uh, people say that, that here at the church, we are a family. I always say, be careful who you talk about because we're all related. I just say that. Let me say that again. Be careful who you talk about in the church because we're all related. Have you ever been bemoaning about someone and hear Jesus say, how do you like talking about my daughter that way? <laughs> Real story, I actually did that with Stacy, my wife. I love her. 27 years married this Thursday. Shout out to Stacy. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, but I remember arguing with her one time and the Lord just spoke and says, why are you yelling at my daughter? <laughs> and I'm like, she's my wife. He's like, excuse me? <laughs> I'm like, why are you yelling at my daughter? I said, enough said. We'll go to Texas Roadhouse. You win. So anyways, <laughs> I was shooting for tacos. But, you know, you don't always win those arguments. Family like church, it's a network. It's relational. It's, it's people bound together through relationship and through obligation. We're bound together by love and obligation. And it's a strong metaphor that Jesus, Jesus uses to describe his family, those who hear God's words and do them. Pastor Bethany Allen says this, within this metaphor, we find more than just an idea to to hold, but an actual identity to live out. We find a roadmap of what it means to relate to one another and to be related to. Family has always existed as as one of the best things on earth, and it's also one of the hardest on earth. And Jesus uses the family as a metaphor for the church, revealing how we will not only relate to one another, but also how we will experience God's goodness through all of it. And whatever ways God has planned to bless us in this room, he's going to do it through the people who are sitting next to you in this room. Oh, if we could just capture that. There there are ways that God can bless us out of this place for sure, 100%. I bet many of us work with people who are Christians and we're happy to do so. But I'm telling you, as God has knit together his own family in this church, if this is your church home, you are part of this family and God has intended to use this organism to bless you. If you treat it as such, as your family, if you're bound together with obligation, motivated by love and grace for one another, That we're not just strangers that come together to sit in a room together, but we're actually family that God has called a meeting. This is a family meeting, and God wants to speak to us. In every family, we find people that help us and people that hinder us. Early in Luke chapter 8, we read how there were people who helped Jesus in his ministry. We know about the 12 disciples. We learned about the women named Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. And Luke makes special record of that fact that they helped Jesus in his ministry. Those individuals were spiritual siblings to Jesus. And they were helpers. And they, they were ones that he could count on. They were quick to give an encouraging word when he needed it and help whenever possible. And without them, the ministry of Jesus would have been more difficult for sure. Right? There are people who help us along the way. But also in every family, as we've already discussed, there are people who will hinder the work that we're trying to do. 
And this is what Luke is showing us with the story of Jesus and his mothers and brothers. They would actually rather hinder Jesus' work than help him. In his wisdom, he chose to keep them at bay and to continue the work that God had placed before him. And you and I must be people who do the same thing. The opinions of some people that are closest to us must not be heeded. It is just that simple. I'm here to tell you, it might not be easy, but it is just that simple. Stop listening to them. Um, pause. This is not therapy. Okay, so do not call me and say, well, I don't, should I be listening to my mama? I have no idea. Right, you got to work on that with the Lord. I'm telling you, you'll know. You will soon, God will give you a discernment and you will soon understand those who are for you and those who are against you. And then may I also remind you that when they're against you, that it's actually not the person who's against you. It's the spiritual thing behind the person that you're fighting. All right, whole other sermon, whole other day. Some voices we do not heed. Are we good? I'll move on, but I can stay right here if you'd like. Yeah, helpers and hinderers. Every family has some. We get, I'm going to talk about a few aspects of the family. I'm almost done. We're getting ready to leave. It's okay. We're going to go get some barbecue. Another aspect of the family is that we're all tied to each other in a thing called time. We're in a time continuum. And our role in family relationships change over time. In our natural families, for example, we follow a typical growth projection. It goes something like this. You're the spoiled child who needs discipline by your parent. And should time prevail, you continue to grow up, then you become the grandparent who spoils said child that needs to be disciplined by their parent. So eventually you're going to grow up. And if we put this into church family context, we're quickly going to see one of God's greatest blessings. We all have a role to play in the church. doesn't matter your spiritual age. We all have a place to play. But we're all growing together. That there are spiritual children in the church that need help. They're still toddling around, bumping into furniture. Right? We help them. We encourage them. We treat them as, as we would treat our own children. We don't bemoan the fact that they can't take five steps. They're learning, right? Spiritually, you see this. And so we're, we're starting to see this in the, the church family as well. I, uh, I heard a story recently of um, uh, a man in church. He's older now. He's about my age. And he's a pastor of a church, too. It's very similar to my story, played in a band. Wow, it could be me. Anyway, it's not me, but it's a guy like me. But he tells the story, having grown up in the church, he remembers at 50-some years old of the Mrs. Smith when he was like seven years old, how she was so encouraging to him every week at, at church when his family went to church. Like he, some 40-some years later, she's passed on and went to heaven, be with Jesus, but he still remembers when he would walk into church and Mrs. Smith would come up to him and say, how you doing, how you doing? And in his teen years, when he started wearing guy liner and was in the band, a punk rock band, was wearing, spitting out blood on Friday and Saturday night, but still coming to church on Sunday, right? And, there, and, and Mr. Jones would come up to him every week and, and say, I'm praying for you. Like, I still love you. I know you're doing this arty thing, but you know, I know that Jesus has you and you belong to Jesus. And he, they just kept encouraging. And he says some 40 years later, those people made a mark in his life that he's not forgotten. And any given Sunday, while you and I, 300 people in the room are sitting here, there's about 90 to 100 kids sitting down the stairs. Did you know that? About 25% of our attendance every week is children below the age of fifth grade. Let me ask you this question. Do you know any of their names? Thank <laughs> you. 
And if you have kids that age, you can't say, I know a few. <laughs> like, that's cheating. And God sees that. We don't cheat at cards in the house of the Lord. We do, we do that at the Hockaday's house. We cheat at cards. Or at the idol's house. You're not playing cards with the idols if you're not cheating. I'm just saying. True story. But there are so many people here in the street. Listen, I know it's easy to say, but we're upstairs and they're downstairs. And I'm just saying, God might say, come early. Come early, come 30 minutes early. They're all eating donuts downstairs in the cafe. I promise you, got a little chocolate on your face right there. Right? They're, they're all eating donuts. Come and be a part of them. Get to know them. Get to know their families. Why? Because we are all families. Let's not make excuses. Let's get to know one another. We also have to understand that um, in our natural lives, there's a moment when we pass on from this place and go to eternity with Jesus. But in the spiritual family, there is no timeline in that. We are going to be family forever. And so we should start getting to know one another and loving our brothers and sisters now. We have a familiar responsibility to help shape people into the image of God. My role as pastor here is to put a lot of this stuff before you. Your role in following Jesus, whatever your role is, is to, to pick it up, chew on it, think about it, contemplate, and as Jesus would say, and do some of it. I, I would never stand up here and say, my words are thus saith the Lord. I'm not saying that, but I do know that sometimes God will use words of mine to speak to the hearts of the men and women here and really tug on you. And God is telling you that you need to do something. And so you need to respond to that. It could be taking your role as a brother or sister here seriously, to obligate yourself to the people next to you, to know them, to pray for them. This week, I heard of a story of a good friend of mine in this church whose mother had a stroke to then be followed by a second stroke. And now we wait for the end. That it, she's just put on good care or whatever this is called, hospice, and we are waiting for her last breath. I can't possibly imagine going through that with my own parents and not having a support team. He tells me with tears in his eyes, I could hear it on the phone, I wasn't there in person, but I could hear it with tears. He said, Jeff, I just, you have no idea the prayers of the people that have helped me this week as I've been navigating this. Another aspect of the family is there is an intimacy that we have in the family. Jesus describes this intimacy as the family is a metaphor and it implies this, this close proximity and, and this idea that we can be involved in some of the relational decisions and actions that God makes. I'm reminded of a story when I was a young kid, I was uh, 14, 15 years old, I was playing in a band with one of my best friends and I'd go to his house about once a week for band practice and we did it because they had a basement and we could be as loud as we wanted in the basement. And, you know, we were terrible musicians, but we were in a band. It was cool. Um, but I would go over there once or twice a week for band practice. And, and my friend had an older sister. Hmm. She, was, she was in high school, like a senior or something. I was a freshman. And I used to catch, catch her out of the corner of my eye. Every once in a while, we'd see her. And um, I told my friend one day, I said, I think your sister's a dream. <laughs> I know. This is the 70s or 80s. I have no idea what it was. Right? <laughs> But I said, your sister's a dream. And he looks me in the eye and he goes, you're right, she's a dream. She's a freaking nightmare is what she is. <laughs> nightmare. Do you see the difference? That family lends an intimacy into the knowledge of one another. I knew her, but from a distance and thought some way about her, but he knows her every day. Jesus, hear me. He's inviting us into that relationship with him.
It's not just that we might know each other more intimately, right? And, and please don't be an overshare. Just be warm and not weird is what we like to say around here, right? We're looking for vulnerability, but we don't need to know you're having a boil lanced on Thursday. I'm just saying. <laughs> Real story that someone told me once. <laughs> the easier thing is like, hey, I'm having a procedure done. Would you pray for me? There you go. I don't need to know all the details. But Jesus is drawing us into an intimacy with him. That's what I'm trying to say. Is that you can know him. When Ryan was up here talking earlier, Jesus is the light of the world. This is the, the language that Matthew used. Matthew uses in his gospel, he says, that the people were walking in darkness and they have seen a great light. And that light is Jesus Christ. Jesus created everything. And he's the one that's drawing all people like moths to a flame. He's drawing people towards himself. And not only is he drawing him, him towards us so that we can be saved, he's drawing us close to him so that we can know him so that we can be motivated by the things that motivate him, that our hearts soon begin to pulse with love and compassion for those people who are outside the church and desperately need him. No longer with the heart of God beating inside of you, do you look at people standing on the street, begging, pleading as addicts and people that need to overcome whatever issue they've got, but you begin to see them with the eyes of Christ and you're moved with compassion. It's not to say you give them money every time. I don't know what God's leading you to. I'm telling you, those people are made in the image of God. God loves them more than you could possibly imagine. And, and he's quite possibly wondering if somebody will reach out to them and tell them that Jesus loves them. I don't know, I don't know. I'm just saying that you get close to Jesus, you begin to know the things that move him and motivate him. Anyways, I think I'm finishing up here. I'll, I'll close with this. Uh, we, we also become included into the intimate acts of family with God. It's incredible to think that, that Christ wants us to be involved in some of these things. And all of this comes from our family relationship with God through Jesus. So we can recount how Jesus mentions how we can gain access to the family of God. To prove that we belong to the family of Jesus is to say that we practice godliness. It's, all, it's what it means. Jesus says to hear the word of God and put it into practice, to do it. So we practice godliness. So we must be people positioning ourselves in the place of hearing God's word. Hear me. You sitting in this place called church, that's a good place for that. When you're reading your Bible, that's a good place for that throughout, your, throughout the week. If you're part of a Bible study, you get together in a small group. I don't care what it is. Those are all good places. And hear me. Hear the word of God. Yes. But Jesus adds a caveat to the end of that. But then do the things that you hear. Do them. And in so doing, you become brothers and sisters to Jesus. So think about this. When Jesus talks about forgiving others like he did earlier in, in Luke chapter 6, when we were talking about the Sermon on the Plain, he's talking about enemy love and forgiving others, not judging people too prematurely, all those things. When we hear those things from the Lord and we put them into practice, we become like him. We're motivated by the things that he does. And our bitterness and self-righteousness begins to evaporate and fade away. When the Bible talks about confessing our sins to one another and prayer for one another, James chapter 5, verse 16, says this, that we're, we're supposed to go to one another, confess our sins, and to pray for one another. We're to be involved in the lives of each other. The prayers of a righteous man are a full effect or have, have an effect. And we are righteous not because of the things that we do, but because of the work that Christ has done for us. Amen? I'm going fast now. I'm trying to get out of here. Um, there's a football game i got to get to. Um, okay. Okay, I'm done. All right, let's pray together. You guys are swell. Thank you.
Heavenly Father, we come before you today grateful for the insights that you've given us, grateful for the wisdom that we can gain from your word. God, we thank you for the story of Jesus and his teachings on family, and it shows us that our spiritual family is a lot like our earthly family. It's sometimes screwed up, messed up. We are bound together in this transformative bond with you and with one another. So as we reflect on this passage in Luke, God, we're reminded of the importance of not just being hearers of the word, but doers as well. Lord, help us this week as we leave, help us to hear your word with open hearts and help us also through the power of your spirit to put those words into practice. We truly wanna be part of your spiritual family. God, we acknowledge all of the challenges and the blessings that come with family relationships, both biological and spiritual. And so we ask Lord for your guidance. We ask for your strength to be helpers and not hinderers in the lives of those around us and help us to invest our time in building meaningful relationships within our church family. Help us to know the kids in our church. They are not the the future of the church, Lord. They are the church. They're part of us. And Father, help us to embrace the intimacy you offer within the family of, of God. Let us be open to one another, no longer living a superficial existence. You have placed us in this family by your choosing to bring to effect the changes that you want for us, Lord God, and for us to live a superficial, superficial and separated life makes that thing to null effect. So Lord, we recognize that now. Bring us into the fullness of the family with one another. And Lord, help us as we navigate the journey of this family and of our faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to support you and have you be a part of our community. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. There you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, and even contribute to the growth of the church through online giving. Or you can come see us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. We can't wait to see you.